Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, an exciting founder that is actually based out of Berlin. So I think that we're going to be able to get, you know, uh, a lesson or two about executing in Europe, where it's obviously a little bit different than executing in, in the US. Uh, but I guess saying without further ado, Gerald Decker, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally born and raised where, Gerald? In a town called Braunschweig, known for two things, for Volkswagen and Jägermeister, not to be consumed together. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Uh, and I know that, uh, how, how, I mean, your parents were also entrepreneurs, or how did you, I mean, we're going to get into how you got, you know, into your current uh, venture with Signavio, with, with but I'm just wondering if, if there was anything, you know, around your up bringing or perhaps your family that really triggered this direction for you? Yeah. So, so I, come, I do come from a family of entrepreneurs. My father, he started as a university professor researching laser technology for industrial manufacturing. And then, uh, you know, over time started his company. So for most of his career, he, um, you know, he built industrial lasers. And, and my uncle actually was one of the pioneers of solar panels. Um, so starting in the 80s, of the last century to, you know, to industrialize the, the usage of, of solar panels for, for, you know, renewable energy production. Very cool. So then how did you get into, would you say that maybe that was a one of the things that perhaps pushed you as well into uh, the engineering, you know, side of things and, and solving problems and things like that? Or how did you get into engineering? Actually, it, it was the reason for not wanting to become an engineer and not to wanting to start my own business. I think when you're when you're young, you're you're sometimes you know try to do something vastly different. Um, I wanted to become a lawyer, but then I, I you know being in high school, I went to the local university, sat in a law uh, in a law lecture, and I fell asleep after five minutes. And then I went next door, and it was theoretical computer science, and I loved it. So. So this was the, the decision to, to go into computer science, actually, and, and, and become an engineer. Because, um, Very cool. In, in, you know, because having entrepreneurs in your family also, you know, not only shows you the bright sides, right, the passion, the love that goes into this, 
but you also see the dark yeah. sides, right? What, you know, there's, there's a downturn, your company crashes into a wall. How does bankruptcy feel? How does it feel when, you know, employees that you had to throw out, you know, won't accept that and camp out in your garden, right? So, so these are the things that, that, that you can feel firsthand if you have that entrepreneurship in the family. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you yourself, you went into into consulting. So why why did you choose consulting? So so I, I just you know I went to university. I loved um, you know I love computer science. I love building stuff. I love programming. Um, and, um, and and after finishing, I actually continued to to do a PhD um, and, and stay with the university, dig a little bit deeper. But over time, I was a little bit bored with, with the work as a researcher, um, and I felt like everything was a little slow, and nobody really cares about what you are producing in terms of research results. So I wanted to do, again, something vastly different, and I took a break from my time at the university, and um, I went to work for McKinsey for a couple of months just to see something vastly different. And, and it was super exciting. It was, um, you know, I, was, I was working on a great project um, for a large telco operator. And um, so a little bit of technical background obviously helped, but, but it was vastly different to anything that I had experienced before. I loved it, and I, I wanted to keep going. But then, you know, life happened, and, uh, and I founded my own company instead. Got it. So then let's talk about Signavio. So, so how did you come up with the idea, and, and how did you bring it to life? Yeah, so, so I was very lucky. I had a very visionary colleague um, in the research group. And already in the first week of, of doing the PhD, he came to me and, and said, Giro, I've seen the future. I've, I've now understood how software will be built and looks like um, in you know, five or 10 years. And um, so he was basically, this was back in 2006. And uh, he was basically thinking through what it would mean if all software would move to the cloud, right? So cloud was still a new thing. The web browser was not really there to host complex, um, complex software. And um, so because we were in a research group dealing with uh, operational improvements, business process management, we were dealing a lot with the flowcharts, right, where you would map out how you work today or how you want to work tomorrow. So we thought it, it might be a great technical challenge just to build a web-based system, um, something that runs in the browser and allows people to do the stuff that we were dealing with in the research group. So basically, a, you know, flowcharting drawing tool, if you will, in the web browser. And we were very lucky that we had um, students, um, student projects. Um, and so basically, uh, you know, people who were looking for an assignment and who would work for it for, for the next six months. And uh, this was very exciting and, and technologically very challenging, working in an environment. So our programming environment was Firefox 1, Firefox 2. There was no Chrome web browser. Internet Explorer didn't support any open standards at the time. And we were building a very you know, heavily technically challenging um, web UI. So, uh, so six months in, this, this was really the, the first magic moment when we did our final presentation, or well, the students did it, um, because there was um, you know, this, this nice incident that the day after the presentation, our service went down. And uh, so we had a little web server, and, and we didn't really understand what was happening. And we figured that in the last 20 minutes, 20, more than 20,000 users had clicked our application. And wanted to see what we had built, and uh, and and it so happened that there there was um, a journalist sitting in the room, and who who blogged about this, put it through like the German um, TechCrunch, if you will, um, and and a lot of people got 
got to know the, the project that we were working on for the first time. So that was that was really exciting to, to see that suddenly thousands of people are using the stuff that you have been building in your, you know, in your, in your garage, if you will. Very nice. So then what happened next? So what happened next, we, we continued building the stuff we were building. It was an open source project, so we had no commercial afterthought. And it was really about the technical challenge of building something that nobody had built before. Um, and, uh, and it was another year in, so this was, um, 2008 when a guy called me up and, um, he was very, he was very nervous on the phone and, um, because he had the super important meeting later that day and he had all of his plans for how they would work in the future in our system. And again, <laughs> the system was down again, server had crashed. Um, and, uh, but this time it was not because 20,000 people had accessed the system, but it was because the power cord had fallen off the computer, which was standing under my desk. So while I was plugging it back in and the server was booting, I asked him, so, so why are you actually using our, our prototype? It says, you know, the system will crash any time, no production use, um, you know, your data might be lost in, in you know, uh, and, and we can't do anything about it. And, and, it, and it turned out that this guy was running operations was a very senior manager for operations at the German railway services for cargo transport. So those people shipping cars and other things to the country on trains. And they were revamping their whole operations. And, um, but the, the interesting thing was that they had a system in place to do exactly that operations planning, that process management, and they had spent millions and millions on it. And I knew that. So I asked them, why are you not using this robust, great product that you bought and you use this crappy academic prototype instead. And, and what he said was really defining for us because he said, well, this other system is built for, for few specialists only, um, has all of the features, all the capabilities that we want, but what your system allows us, it's crappy, by the way, <laughs> it's not fun to use, um, but what your system allows us to do is to very quickly and very easily involve dozens or even hundreds of people into the discussions and build on, on the ideas of each other. So the one thing that you have solved with your system that these, these other uh, commercial tools don't offer is collaboration, bringing people together, making it a team sport. And this is when basically the idea for the company was born um, because we had realized that not only had we solved a technical challenge of bringing you know, a piece of software to, to the web browser, to the cloud, um, but we had actually solved the business problem, which was that we want to involve many more than just two or three experts when you redesign a process. Um, it's not just two or three people, but it's yeah. potentially hundreds. And, and you need a new type of software, a new type of product to support that. Okay. So then what ended up becoming the, the business model and how are you guys making money? Yeah, so, so we, were, we were scrambling to, to find the right uh, monetization model. So being an open source company, we first thought, well, Let's just look at those people who downloaded it and integrated it into their own products. So, for example, at the time, Red Hat, um, already one of the leading open source companies, they had used our software big time and, and built it into their, into their own product. So we reached out to them and asked them, you know, don't you want to sponsor our open source project? And they said, no, but you can become an employee if you want. Um, but we didn't want that. So... So the only way out was to go direct and find customers ourselves who would, who would pay for it. Um, we, were, we were very lucky. We had worked with um, a couple of companies through the university project. And um, the first customer um, then was, um, 
was the health the leading health insurance company in the region called AOK. Um, public health insurance, market share, like 30%, really big, big organization. And for them, it was just a, a perfect fit. They were, they had a merger ahead of them. They had a lot of regulatory change. They were currently implementing SAP. So they had a lot of things that were influencing their operational model. And they had to get a lot more people involved into their business process management um, initiatives than they previously had. Um, so they were looking for a tool or platform to support that. So they became our lucky first customer. Very nice. And then how did you guys go about uh, raising money? Because, I mean, you've raised quite a bit. How much money have you guys raised? So today um, we have raised a little bit more than uh, 200 million euros um, in three rounds. But that, that happened very, very late. So in the early days, remember, we, we, created, we had the, the idea of creating the company in the 2008. We actually incorporated in May 2009. So this was the absolute meltdown from a, from a, you know, economy perspective, right? So um, there was no money around, and uh, and Berlin was was a desert back in the days, actually, for business angels or or venture capital financing, right? So you had the Samuel brothers who had built their you know ringtone thing, and then you know started with Rocket Internet, so doing B two C stuff only. But there was no no other B two B software company. There was not not a tech scene to speak of in Berlin. Actually, in two thousand and nine, the business angels you would meet would be, you know, the people will come to you and say, "Show me your app," and you say, "Well, we don't have an app because it doesn't make sense for our product." And they say, "Well, I, if I don't have an app that I can show to my friends, I'm not investing." Right. So this was the type of um, sophistication that you would find. So so the, for the first couple of years, we really didn't bother about. Um, raising money, um, we felt that it's it's much better time spent to to go chase customers than to go chase investment. So, so we so we we grew the company for quite some time for more than six years in bootstrap manner. So really only grow through through revenues and um, and only in 2015 we were already 70 or 80 people on the team. This is when we started thinking about fundraising for the first time. Wow. So I mean, obviously you were really like bootstrapping the the business. So, I mean, at this point, you really had a lot of leverage on the discussions with with investors because it's not so much, you know, really selling them on the future. I mean, the president in the past, you know, really showcases the historical data and how you're executing. So, so how did you go about choosing the right partner? Because I'm sure that you had a lot of people knocking on the door. Exactly. So, yeah, we had a lot of inbound interest. Um, I don't know where we appeared, but but we felt like suddenly there was a floodgate open, and, and every investor in the world was 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 coming to us. So um, so we were overwhelmed, and um, we took an we took an M and A advisor to help us structure and, and you know coordinate the whole process. Um, we had a couple of, of favorite um, favorite investors. One of them was Summit Partners. And uh, but we still ran, uh, you know, a full blown competitive process. We had management meetings with, I think, 30 funds that we had selected. So we had a certain profile. We wanted to have uh, Americans, American funds, um, because, um, you know, strengthening the U.S. business was one of the big challenges at the time. Um, And we wanted to have one who had done that, that level of growth, so going from 100 people to, let's say, 500 or 1,000 people, we've done that a couple of times. Um, and uh, so 30 funds, we went to management presentations. We had 13 term sheets on the table. Um, 
And then wow. we, we went into diligence with three funds. And um, we were very happy that, that our favorite um, fund to begin with, um, Summit, stayed on. But having a competitive process really helped manage the timeline, really forced them to, to close. Because you could already see, end of 2015, you could already see a lot of volatility in the NASDAQ, for instance. And then in you know, January, February yeah. 2016, the, the stock market came down quite a bit. So, um, so our advisors, they were very eager to, to, to close and, and finish, finish the process fast, not to get into that. And, and when you were saying here, uh, Jero, favorite, what made them favorite? Or what was that profile that looked as, as a favorite one to you guys? What were some of the ingredients? So, so one ingredient was was obviously a, a track record of, of very successful software investments. With Summit, it stood out that they had done a lot of IPOs in the past. Um, they had done a lot of enterprise software um, deals in the past. And um, so, so they really knew that. Um, the other one, obviously, the, the large U.S. footprint, they also have a, they call it a peak performance group, which is an operational team to help portfolio companies with, with all, all kinds of different things um, that you can use for free, right? So um, you can just call them and they come for a couple of weeks to help you. Um, and um, and we, we just like the team, right? In, in the end, it's, it's about the people that you work with. And we had a very good relationship with the, um, with the investment managers, um, you know, dealing with us ahead of the transaction, but also post-transaction. So then, so then having dealt with, let's say, U.S. investors and, and let's say foreign investors to, to the U.S., let's say like investors that are there in, in Europe, what is different? You know, what, what makes that process different when you're pitching a U.S. investor, you know, than, for example, like pitching a European investor? I think there's, there's not much of a difference, but you have just, it feels you have much more choice in the U.S., um, that there are more funds and, and more funds also who are willing to write larger checks. Um, so um, in, in, in Germany, there, there are, you know, at the time, now I don't know, but at the time there, were, there was hardly anybody um, who, who fit the profile, right? And who would be able to write uh, the, check, the check size that we were looking for. So we raised, um, in, in that round of funding, we raised 31 million euros. Um, and, and that was just, you know, there wasn't just not much choice, choice in Europe. Um, so... So U.S. was was more of a natural choice, but in the end, they look they look for the same things, right? They look for, you know, the markets that you're operating in. They look at the team. They look at how robust your product is, or whether you are already legacy, um, and you need to rewrite everything. Um, so um, everybody's looking for great customer references, um, and they call up your customers without you knowing it. Um, that's just that's just how it goes, right? And um, and, and uh, they just did a very thorough job of really screening the company um, very, very closely ahead of making the decision. But I, I guess that's just the nature of the, 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 you know, the check size. And uh, it was slightly later staged than the usual series. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I guess for the folks that are now listening, how big is the operation of Signavio? I mean, any anything that you can you know share about maybe like employees or anything sure. to give a sense of the size? Sure. So we're in terms of employees, we're now um, a little bit more than four hundred people. I think four hundred and thirty or so is the current number. Um, we are serving roughly fifteen hundred um, organizations 
Um, it's typically mid-sized and large organizations. So, um, you know, many of the big banks are our customers or, you know, insurance companies like Aflac or, um, you know, large utility companies, um, large telcos. Um, this is this is basically our, our client base. In terms of, um, you know, financial profile, we, we typically run the company um, not too crazy uh, cash burn. Um, it's probably our legacy from, from being a bootstrap company for the first couple of years where you obviously need to be profitable. Um, we're not profitable at the moment, but it's not like we're, we're not the types of guys who, who feel comfortable with bleeding cash, right? So um, we, we, we try to grow very efficiently. And um, currently we're, we have a momentum of roughly um, 70, 70% uh, year-over-year growth. Very nice, very nice. And I guess, uh, you know, how have you seen as well the ecosystem uh, mature and change uh, there in, for example, in Germany of startups? Well, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very different now, right? So, um, so, for instance, we're currently looking for a new office location here in the city. Um, a couple of years ago, you had real estate like crazy, right? Because Berlin is not an economically strong uh, location. Just, just historically. So, but for the first time, with all of the tech companies booming in the city, and but also the the large brand names um, coming into the city and investing heavily, like you know Tesla being one of the latest ones to to set up shop uh, big time in the region, um, you you just feel the pressure, right? So, so when we now move real estate, just to give you a data point. Um, in our current office, we have been here for four years, and for the same real estate, prices have risen roughly 200 to 250% over four years on, on commercial real wow. estate. So it's, that's what I call boom town. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess, uh, you know, for, the, for your space as a whole, you know, like this collaboration, yeah. you know, this process management, I, how do you see that evolving uh, over time, let's say in the next, let's say, three to five years? Yeah, it's, it's so funny that you, that you asked that. Ten years ago, when we started this company in the process management space, you know, nobody would get what, what this actually is, and, and people would think this is the most boring thing you could ever think of, right? Now you fast forward ten years, you look at today, and, and some of the fastest growing and most notable enterprise software companies are in the process space, right? So you have robotic process automation with companies like UiPath and Automation Anywhere and Blue Prism, for instance. Um, in the space that we're directly in with, uh, with process mining, um, our closest competitor is, is Solonis, who just did a, you know, a funding round at, at a more than $2 billion valuation. Um, and this company only exists for eight years, right? So, um, so, so the space is, is, is much hotter than, than ever. And, and, and it's interesting to see why that is the case. And, and the explanation is, is twofold. One is um, companies are much more interested in delivering a greater customer experience. Um, and they're forced to do so. If you look at, you know, the Ubers, the Amazons of the world, they just show you how great customer experience is done. And, um, and, and it's very easy to have great ideas about customer experience, but it's incredibly hard to turn that into an operational reality if you have 10,000 or 50,000 employees. So, so our software helps with these types of exercises and digital reinvention. And the other point is people are very fascinated with automation and technology in general. And, and machines are simply much dumber than people and you need to tell them much more precisely what they're supposed to do and you need to manage and monitor them much more closely so um so again process technology is the enabler for for an increased degree of automation so so these are the two megatrends that that help us um you know thrive 
and 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 in five or ten years' time, you you will see even more of that because um, you know the operational model and what you do and how things plug together is is going to be you know more important. Got it. So I guess uh, one of the questions that I typically ask the the guests that come on the show is if you had uh, Jero the opportunity to let's say go back in time and and before you you were launching the business, you know, like maybe at that moment where you were thinking about like the the concept and you know like that route of maybe doing something. I guess knowing what you know now, all these years, all this money raised, this hyper growth, all these incredible employees and this team that you've been able to build around you. If you had that opportunity to speak to your younger self and give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a company, what would that be and why? So I think the the, the, the most important thing I would do differently is spend more time and be more, um, you know, to be clearer about how to build the organization. So we didn't have clear roles in the beginning. There were only two roles, for instance. You're either an engineer or you're a sales guy, right? And in an organization of 80 people, there were just two roles, right? But but this is not scalable at all. It doesn't, it, you know, this is not how you can build a, a great company. So, so being much more, you know, making faster choices about how you built the organization, but also about people when things don't work out um, to rather make a, a cut sooner than later. Um, because, it, you know, if you have a bad gut feeling, it's, it's never going to be better. Right. So um, and, and you're just delaying the, the evolution of the company. So so in the end, it's 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 about people. Right. Um, and and yeah. creating the right environment where, where people can thrive and, um, you know, and, 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 and making, you know, higher slow and and make changes fast is is, is probably the. The, you know, the, the, the big lesson learned. I hear you. I hear you. So, Jero, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, just uh, just ping me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm watching that. So just feel free to reach out and, and, and happy to discuss or, you know, help you with, with questions that you might have. Amazing. Well, Jero, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Great. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.